This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The David Pakman Show, Jim Hightower, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Screaming Majority, Media Matters, and Comedian Lee Camp with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Here's your next quote. I think Hail to the Chief needs a little bit fresher sound. It won't be hip-hop, but I might put in some gospel beats. That was a presidential candidate saying he'll take a fresh look at the president's theme song if elected. And this week he actually jumped in front of some Republican polls. Who is it? Herman Cain. Herman Cain, yes! It was Herman Cain. Mr. Kane, the former talk radio host and head of Godfather's Pizza, is now leading Mitt Romney by as much as 10 points in some state polls. This shows first that... Well, Repu- you ever order pizza from Romney? Ex- well... <laughs> <laughs> so what happened to Perry? He just- Perry? Well, Perry, as you may have heard, he came into the race about um, six weeks ago, you know, immediately rocketed to the front, became the front runner, and then he actually started speaking in venues where people could hear him. <laughs> Yeah, and that, and that, caused that a tripped him up. Yeah. yeah. How late can someone get in? Because what seems to be the case here is that uh, if people don't know them, right, right, if they, they have like them, right. So it's like, like Republican candidates as first wives, basically. Till you get to know them, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there's a, a lot of first wives in here. Yeah. <laughs> does um, does Herm Cain have? A lot of political experience before this, or any political no, experience no, Her- before this? Br- briefly put, uh, Herman Cain was uh, a businessman. He rose up in the company that owned Godfather's Pizza, became its CEO. It just seems so interesting that politics is like the only area where having zero experience in it is somehow a positive. Like, would, would you want like a heart surgeon who'd been working hanging drywall for the last like 20 years? In other campaign news, uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, after much flirtation, told the Republican Party he wasn't going to run after all. He also said, and this is true, that he did not mind fat jokes at his expense as long as they were funny. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, panel. (laughs) What are you saying? Like his blood type is ragu? (laughs) Yeah, I'm saying that. You're saying like the Jordache pony on his jeans is real? What are you saying, like, uh, he eats biscuits like they're Tic Tacs? I got a million. I didn't even know this was going to be a question. That's the disturbing part. Yeah, man. I tell you, you know, I, want, I so wanted Mitch Daniels because I wanted to be taller than the president. And then I, 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 wanted, I wanted Chris Christie because, you know, as a fallback position, I'll be slimmer than the president. Right. You know? it's well, just... it looks like you can still be brighter than the president. <laughs> How could Republicans interest more young people? We talked about uh, the myth of voters becoming more 
conservative as they age, which is in fact a myth. And there is a, a pretty legitimate question about how can Republicans interest more young people. During the Obama-McCain 2008 election, the difference in Internet strategy between the two campaigns could not have been more clear. I was getting emails almost daily. It was almost bordering on too much, but there were a variety of different ways to try to engage me from the Obama administration. I was also on the McCain mailing list. I got a handful of emails the entire time. They were poorly done. There was not good internet engagement. That's definitely one side, but really as far as a party, what could the Republican Party do to interest more young people? A lot of emails said the only way the Republican Party could bring in more young people is change their politics to be more more progressive. And as we know, there's no indication that Republicans have any interest in doing that. I think it's I think it's mostly a social thing. If they were to change their social stance, I think the uh the other policies would be wouldn't really be factored into the equation. No question. You I can think, bring I mean, in young people on conservative fiscal policy, but with issues like abortion gay marriage particularly, which is as we have more and more children born into a world where at least in some parts, gay people, gay couples, gay parents, gay adoption and gay marriage is just part of the framework. It's just not a big deal. It's hard to bring people in, young people in with those types of platforms for sure. Right. I think with almost, you know, the social media seems to be pretty left leaning on social issues. That, ki that kids are getting bombarded with. There's all the a time. lot of astroturf conservative stuff. Yeah, but if we look at legitimate, generally speaking, for ho sure, Hollywood. Uh, you know, maybe maybe a way would be if Republicans appealed more to the rebellious nature of young people, frame progressive politics as intrusive and taking away of freedom, which is what's actually attempted to do with older voters too, right? I think it just needs to be done a little bit differently for young people. Maybe that would work. I think that young people definitely have a tendency to see the world with more hope and optimism in a way that some would consider slightly naive. Uh, but others would say, no, it's not a question of naivete. It's a question of, of actual hope. So maybe if you take away hope early on, people will become more conservative. It's a very sad, dystopian idea. But maybe that would work. I'm just thinking out loud here. I don't even know. Uh, I don't know about that. I do know that it would take a complete overhaul. For, for them to recruit young people. What do you think, Natan? I mean, is there any way for really the, for the, we saw the numbers, it would have been a blowout if we only, if only 18 to 29 year olds who voted in 08 counted towards the election, the president would have had over 450 electoral votes. Can Republicans do anything to bring in more young people? I mean, I would like to say that the Republican Party is going to have to move to the, to the left on social issues, but honestly, they've moved to the right on social issues in the last 40 years. So Completely. I don't know if that's actually true. It might just be that we'll develop a new political party and the Republican Party will disappear, but that's kind of being too optimistic about it. I think. Yeah, it's also not really, uh, it, it doesn't really address the issue of what, how to get more young people to si be involved in or sympathize with conservative policy, right? Yeah. I, I don't, whether you call it the Republican Party or something else, it doesn't really change the question. I think it's too difficult to look at it as a whole. I think it's going to come down to one or two candidates who are the ones who really, you know, break break the barriers because... Like Ron Paul or Fred Carger, who we spoke with? No, I, I just no, don't no, no. It's, see it's, it like that. It's going to take someone who, I guess is a bit more to the center, but someone who knows how to appeal to the younger people, like Obama did.
Is there anyone in the Republican Party now that just on not not in terms of policy, but just in terms of personality appeals to young people? I don't know that there is. At the moment, no, I don't think there is. I mean, does, does Sarah Palin appeal to young people? I don't think so. Not I think all. young people realize Sarah Palin is incompetent. I think I, Ron I, Paul, unfortunately, appeals to a lot of young people. And he's like the oldest guy. And like we saw last time, well, wasn't he the one who had that big internet fundraising? He did, thing? Yeah. yeah. That was kind of impressive. What were you going to say, Natan, on this? Well, social issues is one thing, but I think the Republican Party is going to be forced to move into a mo more pro-science perspective in the next 30 years. I mean, it's the, going to be by the way, of people negating evolution and just basic science, basic scientific findings in like 2050. Yeah, the way the way that we even have to describe pro-science, I mean, it's like saying I'm pro I'm pro-truth or I'm pro-facts. It would seem that just the mere existence of the phrase suggests that the uh, the opposing view to that is is vastly wrong well science is a bad word in the u.s now i mean it's like communist I yeah mean, no, people think of science like oh they're elitist in they're elitists in the ivory tower they have nothing to do with reality elitist lefties they're they're fellows at universities and they're doing research and it's just all bad yeah, god it, forbid you would do research to find out how the world works they're killing babies it has become that has it not lewis that that science now is almost being associated with uh it's it has a negative connotation and, and we go right back to manipulation of language very oh wow lewis lewis taking it back taking us back to that but isn't that what point. it is you know it is it's a very astute point if it's possible to prove it wrong you're going to want to know before too long you'll need a test if somebody says they figured it out And they're leaving any room for a doubt Come up with a test Yeah, you need a test Are you sure that that thing is true? Or did someone just tell it to you? Come up with a test Test it out Find a way to show what would happen If you were incorrect Test it out Love fact is just a fantasy in the infamous Enron scandals of a decade ago, unregulated energy hucksters created an array of dummy financial funds so they could evade public scrutiny and perpetrate fraud. To disguise the scams, the funds were given such names as Chuko and Jedi. While Enron's house of cards collapsed, Enron Accounting not only continues in corporate America today, it's also infesting an endeavor that should never be tainted with such financial gimmickry, America's democracy. Corporate hucksters, intent on political profiteering, are setting up dummy funds with such star-spangled names as Make Us Great Again and Restore Our Future. These are super PACs created to amass millions of dollars in unrestricted corporate cash to back the candidacies of particular presidential wannabes. These groups can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money, something the candidates themselves are barred from doing. Already, the dummy funds are becoming larger than the candidates' own campaigns, allowing a few big-money interests to pervert our democratic process into their plutocratic plaything. How few? As of August, more than 80% of the money in super PACs backing Republican candidates has come from only 35 people writing six- and seven-figure checks. Technically, these dummy groups must not coordinate their actions with the candidates they back. But this ban is a fraud. For example, Rick Perry's Make Us Great Again PAC is headed by a corporate lobbyist who had been Perry's chief of staff and is now both a major fundraiser and political advisor for Perry. 
Hello? The front group, the lobbyist, the fundraiser, and the advisor don't have to coordinate. They're all the same person. This is Jim Hightower saying, What these super PACs represent is the inronization of our politics. It's a legalized corruption that's tantamount to a corporate takeover. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Nobody has been tougher on Rick Perry than from the right, the far right, yeah. and not so much his position on immigration, which some uh, pundits on the right, guy, like Bill Kristol, who you'll hear from, uh, you know, Bill, Bill Kristol talked about uh, that he's got P Perry's position on immigration, he says is completely defensible. It's just that Rick Perry won't defend it effectively. Yeah. He said that Rick Perry's performance in the debate Bill Crystal did was a complete disaster in an editorial he wrote. And remember, these are the the, pe the people that are complaining about him, and the, and the what you're the video you're about to see, and, and whatever Ben's about to read you. It, these are the people that seduced this guy into running. They, they were the ones who were going to say, "Well, we need a legitimate far right candidate," and Rick Perry has the telegenics and the experience and the intelligence and all of that to do that. And in fact, they were they're, they're now seeing that they were just plain wrong. Uh, only occasionally coherent. Rick Perry was referred to by critics on the right, a complete failure. William Crystal, in that piece I was talking about in the Weekly Standard, said that uh, no frontrunner in a presidential field has ever, we imagine, had as weak a showing as Rick Perry. It was a co close to a disqualifying two hours for him. That was Rick Perry. Uh, a guy named Peter Weiner, who's worked for the last three Republican administrations, uh, he said, I hope uh, Governor Rick Perry enjoyed his six-week run as the frontrunner of the GOP, GOP field because now it's over. Uh, uh, the, on Red State, they organized the event, uh, said Rick Perry was a train wreck in the debate, flubbed his response on the Romney flip-flopping, which we brought you and read you, yeah. which is a fabulous answer. Uh, he got his first question tonight and stumbled, good grief! <laughs> Ross Kaminsky at the American Spectator validated criticism that Perry not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, Joe Scarborough on MSNBC, Rick Perry looked as uncomfortable as a chimp opening a suitcase. Well, you know, if you're looking for that tiebreaker as to why to vote for a Democrat or Republican and you don't feel like the Republicans speak your language, it's because they say things like, good grief. <laughs> good grief. Good grief, this was a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, uh, and Megyn Kelly talking to pundits afterwards, she said many of them uh, were pointing to his, uh, to his answer, the answer on the Romney and the, the flip-flopping, which yeah. you could clearly hit him on, uh, as a missed opportunity to Governor Ferry and overall representation of, of uh, how they wanted him to do better, but were disappointed. So then on Fox News Sunday, you got uh, Bill Crystal, you got uh, Juan Williams, uh, you have the uh, host Britt Hume, you have uh, A.B. Stoddard from The Hill, uh, all gigantic conservatives. <laughs> Just like including Quan Williams in that, um, and, and there they were all they all eviscerated uh, Rick Perry, and yeah. it was telling. Starting with uh, Britt Hume, who uh, uh, 
couldn't, again, they, all, they, they say not just a bad performance, but essentially the sense is it's over for Rick Perry. Perry really did throw up all over himself in the debate <laughs> at a time when he needed to raise his game. And he not only, I mean, he, he, he did worse, it seems to me, than he had done in previous debates. Perry is about, you know, one half a step away from t almost total collapse as a candidate. I, I have a lot of thoughts come to mind when I see the punditry post-debate, when I, when I hear these people talking about it. I mean, um, Rick Perry does sort of embody a lot of the politics that these people like and support. And they don't, they were, I think, shocked by what he offered in a public forum. But, you know, these same people, or a lot of the same people, were saying a lot of the same things during George H.W. Bush's debates with Al Gore. And, I'm mean, sorry, George W. Bush's debates with Al Gore. And I, you know, I find it always so curious. I, I thought George. Bush was a horrible debater. The days after some of those debates, um, both when he was a a, uh, you know, a primary candidate and when he was the the nominee, uh, were were aghast by his performances. And of course, he went on to to become president. Um, so I, I don't really know what this means for Rick Perry. I, he has a shorter lifespan because of this. He has to correct things very quickly because the primary season is is dwindling. Uh, I mean, the, yeah. the pre-primary season. But what it also means is it feeds the dissatisfaction that Republicans have with their field of candidates. Also, it lowers the bar then for Rick uh, Perry's performance in a debate. Nothing could go wrong when you set the bar low on the Texas governor in a debate. Exactly. Works That's out well for the country. Right. Uh, Bill Crystal on that same program said that 70% of Republicans now referring to Perry's performance, uh, which we read you what he thought of that, that it was just incredibly damaging to him and incredibly disappointing. But now the results of the straw poll. 70% of the Republicans, having seen with their own eyes Romney and Perry up on the stage Thursday night and then speaking to the crowd on Friday, mixing and mingling, 70% voted against those two frontrunners, a vote of no confidence in Perry, I think because of his really poor debate performance, but also Mitt Romney who spent a lot of time in Florida over the last five years. These are very weak frontrunners. Right. And uh, A.B. Stoddard, uh, obviously. But by, by the way, remember, these are fewer than 2,000 people, it sounded like, voting in 3, 000, that 3,000, about 28, 29. 20, uh, fewer than 3,000 people. But again, very rabid, active followers. No, for, for sure. People, and, is, and, they're, and they've sent a message that the country is hearing now. We're sitting here talking about it. People, you know, it, it, made, it made news, and it, and it should. I mean, it's saying that we're, we're not happy with who we have. who's become a millionaire since getting into office. And it wasn't his book. It's all these real estate deals. He's a genius when it comes to real estate. He buys it at abnormally low prices and then sells it at abnormally high prices. And it's all from this network of people that he meets for people who do business in Texas. It's genius. He's a real estate genius. You should go on. This is the way you make money with no money down. You, too, can be a real estate mogul with no money down. Simply run for office, and 
Here is uh, Michelle Bachman saying it's a little strange that you were so, so adamant about um, mandating without even going to legislature this HPV when you had a, a staffer who worked for, formerly worked for the company that sells this product. Here's that exchange. I just wanted to add that we cannot forget that in the midst of this executive order, there was a big drug company that made millions of dollars because of this mandate. We can't, we can't deny that. What are you suggesting? What I'm saying is that it's wrong for a drug company because the, the governor's former chief of staff was the chief lobbyist for this drug company. The drug company gave thousands of dollars in political donations to the governor. And this is just flat out wrong. The, the question is, is it about life or was it about millions of dollars and potentially wow. billions for a drug company? All right, I'll, I'll let Senator Santorum hold off for a second. got to respond to that. Yes, sir. Um, the company was Merck. And it was a $5,000 contribution that I had received from them. I raised about $30 million. And if you're saying that I can be bought for $5,000, i am offended. I'm, a, I'm offended for all the little girls and the parents that didn't have a choice. That's what I'm so, uh, if you're saying that I can be bought for $5,000, I'm offended. For the record, I can be bought for five thousand. No, I know you can be bought for about five hundred dollars, and I would say maybe five ten dollars. But I mean, wouldn't it occur to you, like, are you suggesting that my votes for sale? Are you suggesting that I did this for money? No, he's offended because remember, she doesn't say he got five thousand dollars. He knows how much he gets. Right? I make 30 million. I raised 30 million. You think you can buy me for 5,000? He was basically, he was basically starting a negotiation with the next person who's going to come into his office to buy him. <laughs> I'm offended at 5,000. I don't even start, I don't even start getting, feeling good about myself until you add a couple of zeros to that, my man. That's pretty revealing. That's pretty revealing of Rick Perry. I may be a whore, but I ain't a cheap whore. <laughs> I'm an expensive whore. And the notion that you would say that I'm a cheap whore, that's offensive to me. Gotta give him credit for being honest. Gotta give him credit for being honest. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. 
In a rare interview on September 19th, GOP presidential candidate Rick Perry told USA Today's Susan Page that he's not worried because he can take the heat. But if reporters like Page are supposed to bring it, heat is not a major concern. Page reports that one reason for Perry's confidence is, quote, because only one issue really matters to Americans in this election. It's the one he plans to ride first against his Republican rivals and then against President Obama, jobs, close quote. Perry, Page says, quote, can cite job creation statistics in Texas that are the envy of the nation's other 49 governors. The Lone Star State has accounted for 40% of the jobs created in the United States since June 2009, close quote. So here we go again. If Page looked beyond Perry's press kit, she might consider that more relevant information would be the state's unemployment rate that takes into account how many people have jobs and how many want them. On that score, Texas is right in the middle of the pack, so about half of the country's governors actually wouldn't envy Perry on that score. But Page wasn't done. Quote, now Perry is pouncing on Romney with the brio of a rodeo cowboy lassoing a bull. To every audience, he ridicules Romney's record on jobs when he was governor. Massachusetts ranked 47th nationwide, close quote. Assuming we think governors are responsible for states' employment rates, it would seem worth noting that Massachusetts' unemployment rate was about three points below the current Texas rate when Romney left office. But it must be hard to focus on data when there's a cowboy in the room. President Obama is a very fit and very athletic person. He is very good, for example, at basketball, which is his favorite sport. However, he is not very good at bowling. He is, in fact, bad at bowling. Which, do you remember momentarily during the 08 presidential primary campaign, him being bad at bowling turned into some sort of cipher for why he wasn't going to be able to get white people to vote for him. Remember that whole theory? About how being bad at bowling meant no white electorate would vote for him? And then he wins Idaho <laughs> and Nebraska, and everybody remembers, hey, didn't he win Iowa, too? It became sort of an untenable analysis. But still, he is, in fact, bad at bowling. We learned that in March 2008 when candidate Obama visited this bowling alley in Blair County, Pennsylvania, and got some size 12 shoes. In the 2008 election, President Obama, ultimately the man who would become President Obama, uh, won Pennsylvania pretty easily. He actually won by more than 10 points in Pennsylvania. Uh, but he did not win in Blair County, where he went mulling. He lost by 24 points in Blair County. Uh, he did still win the state, as Democratic presidential candidates have been doing in Pennsylvania for almost 20 years now. And in 2008, that won him 21 electoral votes over John McCain. You only need 270 total. Pennsylvania gave him 21 of those. 
Republicans now control both houses of the state legislature and the governorship in Pennsylvania. And they have just proposed a change so that if Barack Obama performs the same way in the next election as he did in 08, he would not get 21 electoral votes like he did last time, or 20, which is how many Pennsylvania will get this time around. If Barack Obama does in Pennsylvania what he did the last time, this time he would get a net gain of maybe one electoral vote under a new set of rules the Republicans are considering. Even if he wins the state, they might just give the Republican nominee more electoral votes anyway. Nice, right? The Republican plan is to stop awarding all of Pennsylvania's electoral votes to whoever wins the state's vote overall, and instead to award most of them district by congressional district. In 2008, remember, Barack Obama won the state by more than 10 points. But if you look at the map, district by district, if you sort of squint at it, it almost looks like John McCain might have won. And John McCain did win more congressional districts in that race. He won 10 out of the 19. He was able to pick up the Republican areas of the state, as you'd expect, places like Blair County, home of that bowling alley. But he won his districts by smaller margins. So McCain lost the popular vote statewide by a lot. If Pennsylvania Republicans think it's going to go like that again in their state in 2012, the Republican narrowly carrying a bunch of Republican districts but losing the whole state, in this new plan being considered by the Republican-controlled legislature with support from the Republican governor, which means it very well could become law, in this new plan, a replay of the 08 presidential race in Pennsylvania with this new plan in place would mean the Republican nominee with those 10 districts John McCain won would be winning 10 electoral votes. Barack Obama with his nine districts would win nine electoral votes plus two bonus electoral votes for winning the state's overall popular vote. So President Obama's overall net gain from his Pennsylvania win would not be 21 electoral votes like it was in 08. It would be one electoral vote. Barack Obama would get 11. John McCain would get 10. That's what Barack Obama would get for trouncing the Republican nominee in Pennsylvania by more than 10 points like he did last time. He'd get one net electoral vote. So by persuading no more people, by winning no more votes, by winning no more congressional districts than they did the last time, Republicans in Pennsylvania might have just figured out a way to add 20 electoral votes to the Republican side of the margin in the next presidential race. Not by getting any more votes, not by persuading any more people, just by changing Pennsylvania's rules so they would benefit the Republican candidate. This is how Republicans in the states rule this year. This is what they're doing with control of the state legislatures and the governorships. Unions give money to Democratic candidates and get out the vote, do get out the vote for Democratic candidates, then unions have to be destroyed by state law. Democrats count on newly registered voters turning out for Democratic candidates, then it must become much, much harder to newly register voters by state law. Democratic voters are disproportionately minorities and poor people and students who disproportionately don't have official photo ID, then official photo ID will be required to vote by state law. And now in Pennsylvania, Republicans can't figure out how to win the state, but they can figure out how to narrowly win some districts. So then, by golly, they'll change that state law, too. This is called using public policy for partisan outcomes. This is called putting your thumb on the scale. I turn my head up to the sky. I focus one thought at a time. I do not let the little things under my tightly bun sleep.
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Campaign Barack Obama, the good Barack Obama, the one from 2008, the one we liked, uh, the one who hasn't let people down. But I tell you this, one thing he has done is that I thought he would be afraid to do when we had those awful, ugly moments at the Republican presidential debates, when we had the wild cheering of the executions, which was just awful. That, to me, was almost the worst one because it was so visceral and so celebratory. Uh, of something that, at the very least, even if you're even even if you're in favor of capital punishment, has to be taken soberly. Uh, the cheering of that, the cheering of the of the of the fictional 30-year-old man who doesn't have health insurance that we should let die, that got the big cheer. Uh, and then finally, the repulsive cheering of an actual person, an individual person, uh, the gays, the booing of the gay soldier in the in the more recent debate. So uh, Obama condemned a bunch of that. He didn't take on the capital punishment one, but a couple of weeks ago while campaigning in San Jose in the Silicon Valley raising money, he uh, he hammered those guys for that. He hammered Rick Perry for his stance on uh, climate change while the, Texas was burning and he's sitting there denying climate change. And then he lit into the audience reaction and the fact that nobody stood up. So here is uh, Barack Obama, the human rights campaign. Uh, this is good stuff. No way around it. This is good stuff from the president. We don't believe in the kind of smallness that says it's okay for a stage full of political leaders, one of whom could end up being the President of the United States, being silent when an American soldier is booed. We don't believe in that. We don't believe in standing silent when that... That's, uh, that's the first part of that. It's good. I like it because he's not, again, he's not just calling out the audience, he's calling out the leaders. And then... He got into it, and this is when you want this guy's policies to follow the rhetoric. But anyway, here's the rest of what Obama had to say. It's good. That happens. We don't believe in them being silent since. You want to be commander-in-chief? You can start by standing up for the men and women who wear the uniform of the United States, even when it's not politically convenient. We believe in a big America, a tolerant America, a just America, an equal America that values the service of every patriot. The good stuff. Good stuff from the president. And John McCain agrees. Kind of. John McCain says, no, 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 no. Look, 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 look. We're all in favor of gay soldiers. We're all in favor of gay soldiers. It's just at the debate, you can't, there's no chance in the debate to sort of, why would anybody at the debate want to set themselves apart and call attention to themselves by saying something that would reflect actual leadership? Do you think that uh, the Republican candidate should have spoken up at that debate about that? I, yeah, I do, but a lot of times, you, you know, when you're in a debate, you're thinking about what you're going to say and what the question is going to be. Uh, uh, it's hard to react sometimes, so, but I'm sure that uh, I would 
bet that every Republican on that stage did not agree with that kind of behavior. I'm going to disagree with you about whether they disagreed with that kind of behavior. And also, at a debate, I don't know. There's every opportunity at any point to yell in and go, hey, this is wrong. That's wrong. You think maybe that would have gotten some coverage? Maybe? A little? Come on, John McCain. Come on, man. Boy, that guy, what a giant disappointment he turned out to be. Uh, and he just continues to prove it, although he proves it to some degree of irrelevancy now. Uh, Mitt Romney, he also had an opportunity, because if any Republican up there, along with John Huntsman, we think maybe, and Ron Paul, I suppose, too, that sort of they don't see any place for uh, booing of uh, gay soldiers. Um, but uh, he didn't say anything, and he was talking to the Manchester Union leader in uh, New Hampshire, where New Hampshire, Banjos in New Hampshire where he's campaigning, uh, and uh, he explained uh, why it wasn't a sign of a lack of leadership, why he didn't speak up. Uh, of course he didn't speak up, because that's, that's who Mitt Romney is, not speaking up. Uh, actually, I think we can hear the boos. Uh, I would tell you that in these debates, there's been a lot of booing and a lot of uh, applause, uh, cheering and booing, uh, uh, some of which I don't agree with. Uh, now, I have not made it my practice to, to, to scold the audience and say, I disagree with this person, I agree with that person, because it's, uh, it goes in a lot of different directions. I don't recall whether this soldier, whether people were booing his question or just booing uh, they him. They booed as soon as he identified himself as a, as a gay person. I, you have to look into that. I, I don't know when, when they booed, and I don't know why people booed. But they're, I, <laughs> You don't know why people booed. You're lying. You're lying, and you just said I don't know why they uh, I don't know why they were uh, whether people were just booing his question. The guy's like, no, 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 they booed right away, and he's like, you have to look at that. And the reporter, I, I just di I did look at it, and now I'm repeating it to you. Uh, I, oh my God, my understanding of politics is that voters respond to authenticity, and I get it. I know the difficulty that he's in of being a less conservative Republican trying to win the primary, but it's not taking anyway. Nobody believes that you're this tough talking conservative. So just be who you are. And maybe I'm wrong, but my hunch is Mitt Romney would probably like to go, yeah, I think I should have spoken up and don't boo any gay soldiers. It's despicable. Just do it. See, if you're going to lose, lose being you. It is Mitt, Prick, and what's-her-name. <laughs> I believe in science. I believe in God. Of course, we all believe in God. Yeah, Mormon God with albino Indian angels. We're all basically evangelical. You believe in global warming. I said I believe in something. I'm looking for proof. Yeah, you put your dog up on the roof. But I'm a letter. And I'm acceptable 
You're as dull as hell, and I'm incredible. Things stay bad. Either one of us could be Iraq. We're gonna get the White House back. You wanna dismantle Social Security? Uh-huh, that's me. Oh, me too. Really? You invented Obamacare. That was just for Massachusetts. I really think it's useless. Hey, remember me? I used to be in the top three. Now I got the crazy mojo. You're really just like me. As if. Exactly. I'm as if. Well, you are a little stiff. But I'm electable and I'm acceptable. I'm kind of lazy, but Michelle makes me look a little less crazy. Uh-huh. If things stay bad, any one of us could be alright. Except Michelle, she's kind of beyond the We're path. Hey. get the White House back. You vaccinated those 12-year-old girls. That's an issue, you know. Hey, if it was up to me, we'd still have polio. <laughs> I I'll admit that was a mistake. Wait, wait. On Social Security, you're doubling down. But on cervical cancer, you're not going to stand your ground? Hey, I know what makes the Tea Party hot. And what's more, I believe in an actual Christian God. That's why I'm electable and I'm acceptable. I'm never going to win it because Republicans are bigots. If things stay bad, bad any one of us would be around. But it's going to be me. Gonna get the White House back. I could win it too. It was over before it started. That vaccine makes kids turn retarded. Maybe we should give it to everyone. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would put the chances of a Broadway producer not, That's what I was gonna not say. producing that uh, at about zero right now. Get that on its feet! This is a gold mine! Local Rotary Club, North Carolina Governor Beverly Perdue suggested that Congress should postpone elections to allow politicians to focus on fixing the economy rather than on getting reelected. While a Purdue spokesperson said the governor was using hyperbole to make a point about the political process, right-wing blogs were not as forgiving. But no one took it as far as Rush Limbaugh did. If they could get away with canceling elections, they would do it. That is who the Democrats of today are. That's what the American left is all about. You know, not to draw any connections or comparisons, far be it for me to do that, but Adolf Hitler would agree with Beverly Perdue. Barack Obama also uh, uh, campaigning aggressively. He was in Washington, he spoke to the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, and he, he, it sounded like uh, it was uh, 1966. 
It did sound like it was 1966. It, um, you know, it turns out we have a black president. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that until uh, until uh, I heard the speech. No, I think members did. of the it Congressional sounds- Black Caucus didn't know it either. No, well, yeah. Apparently, they didn't think so. This is, sounded that you're going to hear from Barack Obama here in a manner that you haven't heard him sound at all. I mean, it's back to that thing, and you realize why you were so excited in, back in, in 2008. Because yeah. uh, he's capable of sounding great. Uh, let's listen to uh, Barack Obama uh, at the Congressional uh, Black Caucus, because... Uh, uh, as, as, as he channels uh, Martin Luther King. Sometimes he gets tired, but he's going to press on. So I don't know about you, CBC, but the future rewards those who press on. With patient and firm determination, I'm going to press on for jobs. I'm going to press on for equality. I'm going to press on for the sake of our children. I'm going to press on for the sake of all those families who are struggling right now. I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. I don't have time to complain. I'm going to press on. I expect all of you to march with me and press on. That's good stuff. That was <laughs> um, the, <laughs> that was a good speech. I mean, that was uh, that was a very exciting uh, presidential moment. Uh, to, to hear the president speak with passion, which we don't hear very often, is always great. And it's only speaking to that audience. But yeah. it, you know, and he's over, about to and he's about to tell that audience to shut up. Right. I was going to say. I was going <laughs> to say. But he does it with passion. No, I was just going to say he's about to tell them stuff that they just don't want to hear, and that's funny too. Take off your bedroom slippers. Put on your marching shoes. Shake it off. Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Stop crying. We are going to press on. We've got work to do. CBC, God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. (laughs) That was great. That was great. yeah, you know, I, I think I think the president is is actually frustrated. I think he's frustrated the people. There's a little bit about this president that makes you think that he does things with a wink and a nod. That you know, he said, "Listen, I know what you all want. I'm going to get to it. It's going to happen. Uh, but but for the moment, it's not going to happen." And and I, I just feel like when he speaks to his built-in constituencies, he has a bad time communicating that. Uh, I think he does it with well, gays. I think he, has a bad I, time. he did it with DADT with the gays uh, and and and. And, and the the everyone who was pushing that that legislation, I think he's had a hard time with the with the CBC here, because of that. I think people are impatient with with good reason. But I I also think the president feels like the, he has them in their back, back pocket, and he doesn't. He cannot take people. Yeah, but for I mean, granted. don't you think that he? I mean, I think that people are impatient because he's failed. And in the, well, in, in I mean, the capacity to deliver on those things, I mean, I, 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 I okay, I, I don't know, th- I, I don't know that the, the, I mean, yes, at that route, but I think that's what I'm talking about here. I think the president feels like I'm not going to fail. We're not going to fail. It's just going to take a little bit of time. We're going to hear from Maxine Waters, and I, uh, and I, a congressman out here for in in California, a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, and I'm not sure she, I'm not sure she, I, I'm not sure they were really disagreeing. Like, I don't quite know yeah. from where her criticism was because she says that we're with it. But anyway, she took exception or at least uh, was uh, expressed some surprise that he had said that uh, um, to stop complaining. Yeah. Uh, so here is uh, Maxine Waters reacting afterwards. Well, I'm not sure um, exactly who the president was talking to. As you know, the Congressional Black Caucus has been out in five cities where we held town hall meetings and jobs fairs addressing this 16.7 unemployment that's real, that translates in some areas to 30, 40 percent unemployment, and with black youth, 50 percent unemployment. So I'm not sure who the president was addressing. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
the president got caught up in his words too. I mean, he got caught up in the moment, and and went, you know, I think passionately far in this speech. Uh, it's true. Which way? He hasn't in done, the criticism? No, in the well, in the criticism, and also in the rhetoric. I, I just, I, I sort of think that, you know, Maxine Waters is taking apart word by word what the president said, and which she is has the right to do. Uh, the president, I think, in and I'm not defending him because it, he put himself in this position, as you said, and I agree totally. But the president is also speaking to the caucus and saying, we're going to get to this stuff. You know that I care about this stuff. We need votes now. I'm running for president again, and I need you. Here he's addressing the CBC, but the complaints could, I mean, he could have been talking to gays. He could have been talking to Latinos, frustrated with his stance on immigration reform. He could have been, and his failure to press the DREAM Act. He could have been talking to yeah. progressives upset about the economy and failure to take on Wall Street. In this case, it happened to be blacks, but I, I think everybody essentially stands in the same place is expressing frustration, and I, I, don't, I, I don't think saying, I'll get to it, is effective. Here's Maxine Waters uh, criticizing the president on criticizing, uh, on criticizing the caucus uh, as, she defends, uh, and, and, as she defends them and suggests that he would never have said these things about other ethnic groups. I found that language a bit curious because uh, the president spoke uh, to the Hispanic caucus, uh, and certainly they're pushing him on immigration. Uh, and despite the fact that he's appointed a Sotomayor to the Supreme Court, he has an office for excellence in Hispanic education right in the White House. They're still pushing him. He certainly didn't tell them to stop complaining. And he would never say that to the gay and lesbian community who really pushed him on don't ask, don't tell, or even uh, in a speech to AIPAC. Uh, he would never say to the Jewish community, stop complaining about Israel. So I I don't know who he was talking to because we're certainly not complaining. Okay. We're working. We support him and we're protecting that base because we want people to be enthusiastic about him. Doesn't it help him that he delivers a speech before the Congressional Black Caucus, has a degree of criticism of them, which he fails to deliver very effectively, but nonetheless that he criticizes the Congressional Black Caucus during the speech, he's going to get... Obviously, there's going to be uh, a lot of talk from the right that he's uh, kowtowing, that he's uh, that whatever the Congressional Black Caucus wants, Barack Obama does. That'll be their line. The yeah. socialist Barack Obama does whatever the blacks want. Uh, so then he gets Maxine Waters to come out the next day and <laughs> and criticize him for the speech. Yeah. I mean, it, that's I mean, the administration does not see Maxine Waters. I don't think showing up on CBS and think, oh, stop hammering us. I think it helps. Him. What he needs to do is what he's doing, and he's starting with the Congressional Black Caucus, is to go out there and tell people, I you know, I hear you. We're, we're we're going we're gonna to make this work, but in order for me to actually hear you and do something about it, you have to reelect me. I mean, that's what it's, what's starting right now. Um, and, and, you know, I, I listen, I'm going to trust him on that. I'm going to trust him on that because I want him to beat any of these yahoos are running against him because I'm a Democrat, because I like him. I think that he's, uh, I just find him frustrating. And I think it, it's, it's understandable that all these groups find him. Can I tell you where some of maybe that frustration is coming from with Maxine Waters aside? And in that last clip when she brought up how, he wouldn't say that to these three other groups. And yes, he told all them patience. As you said, there's this tone. And historically, black folks are written off. It's like, yeah, I hear concerns, but you're just black folks anyway. And then there's, not a, there's usually not enough of a, of a fiery group behind a lot of black people's concerns in the country. And that's what, generally what the Congressional Black Caucus is for. So if he's speaking to them, and maybe not to just lazy folks, she's like, we're doing things. We're actually helping the community that elected us to help them. Because every community has a group of people that they've elected to help them, in general. 
Um, so except, when you accept the juice, <laughs> yeah. we're trying to get one. Well, we're trying to. We're working on. We it. can't catch a freaking break. Go on. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, you can you can say things each. I'm like, okay, calm down, be patient. Or then you can say, uh, it, it basically is like get out. There was the other words. These things were written. Um, get out of bed. Put on. Take off your slippers. You lazy right. black folks. <laughs> Put on some boots and well, go I mean, to work. It's, it's, then, it's, it's start marching, which is you know, it, yeah. which is thematic. You know, it, it, there's a history to that. You know, it begin yeah. be, begin the march. Um, and it just sound, It just it has it has tones of. And like I said, I don't think he meant it this way. That's why it's weird because you're calculated on everything else when you're a politician, yeah. except when you don't know how this can possibly sound because uh, they don't really vote that much anyway. But he needs them though. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Well, you know, just another indication of how absurd the situation for Republicans is looking at 2012. Republican candidates have been fighting for the support of one of America's most insane racist sheriffs, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. This is the guy responsible for a number of different issues related to, quote, rounding up illegal immigrants in Arizona. He's done some things I don't necessarily mind. Uh, Tent City, for example, making those who are in, in, in prisons in Arizona have to live in tents outdoors. As long as their lives aren't, aren't, as long as their health is not in danger as a result, I don't care about that. Making them wear pink underwear. You know, I don't actually care about that at face value. I do, however, think it's representative of the idea that being feminized is objectively bad. And let's be honest. We know Joe Arpaio's views. He's definitely a guy who is not going to be too sensitive to gender stereotypes. Uh, so I think that, that that there's I have that concern there. He probably could have gotten away with making it orange underwear and having it work just as well. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. And it turns out a lot of Republican candidates have been trying to get in touch and meet with Joe Arpaio. A number of them have already met with Joe Arpaio. I didn't think that an endorsement from Joe Arpaio was really that good of a thing. I mean, I know the Republican Party is known uh, as, as when it comes to illegal immigrants, it's really the pro-genocide party, right? I mean, they, they are, we have many, we should kill illegal immigrant views from those on the far right. Yeah, go ahead, Natan. Yeah, the other day during the Republican debate on CNN, the audience was like applauding and cheering upon the mention of offense uh, across the Mexican border. And it was just like, who's the most macho anti-immigrant candidate? Right, absolutely. Who's the most uh, who, and who's the most neoconservative? It almost became, but that's that's another issue. So, bring in Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He's this guy who br builds these concentration camp-style desert prisons, where uh, he really doesn't treat people who aren't white particularly well. And the Republican field is in love with this guy. They they're all calling him. 
They want his endorsement. He's going to gather the Republicans together at his house. And what is he going to do? Set loose a Mexican and see who can tackle the guy first and he'll endorse that person? I mean, why would anyone want Joe Arpaio's endorsement? It seems if Joe Arpaio endorses you, there's a problem. But no, on the Republican side, people seem to love it. They love Joe Arpaio. He's probably one of those American heroes. Michelle Bachman, this is not a joke. Michelle Bachman said she considers Sheriff Joe Arpaio one of my heroes. That's a quote. She said it in a, in a short news conference mm -hmm. that she held before meeting with the 79-year-old sheriff a few days ago. He's a great guy. Anyone would want his endorsement. Well, he sure is great at locking up brown people and detaining them in pseudo-internment camps, but I don't know that he's great in too many ways beyond that. Do you? Uh, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> Joe Arpaio, that's who you really, if you're running on the Republican side, you've got to hear from Joe Arpaio. He needs to, to endorse you. I'm Lee Camp, but this is your moment of clarity. I'm not going to say the left wing in this country is producing a lot of great leaders right now, but if you're a Republican, I feel bad for you. It is painful to watch these debates with this flock of lizard brain, lizard skin, beady eyed halfwits, these multi millionaire, faux Christian, past the ammunition, wrong headed, orange headed, headed, egomaniacal, evangelical. Who seem to lose every political debate to their arch nemesis, science? They have the same opinions on everything except who destroyed healthcare the best and who came out the strongest against helping old people afford their assisted living. It's a gaggle of bobble headed giggle sh faux cowboys who are rugged and tough and manly and covered in more makeup than Christina Aguilera starring in Cirque du Soleil. Ronald McDonald meets Ronald Reagan and f***s him in the ear hole until he drools Freakonomics and trickles trickle-down theory. Each of them competing to be the next warmonger, itching to get their itchy trigger finger on the button, hoping they can convince enough people that their lord, their imaginary anti-science, pro-life, pro-death penalty, pro-unmanned drone aircraft bombing, anti-drugs, pro-alcohol, anti-empathy, pro-money, anti-gay, pro-materialism, anti-immigrant, pro-economic cannibalism, lord wants them to vote for this particular disingenuous clown over that particular disingenuous clown. And there's nothing I hate more than a clown that's not straightforward with you. This insane asylum of mentally ill, maniacally shrill Oompa Loompas all climbing on top of one another like a box of racist puppy dogs vying for your attention so they can convince you to believe the historically inaccurate portrait of President Reagan they've created out of duct tape and whiteout and anecdotes ripped from the pages of Twilight novels. They don't believe in evolution, but if I were on the stage with that many backward thinking, cross-eyed 
Walmart greeters. Neither would I. Once Newt Gingrich is hunched over eating his scabs and Rick Santorum is trying to wipe his ass on a handicapped octogenarian in the front row, you too would question how advanced mankind is. They are nothing more than tainted, maggot-riddled flesh wrapped tightly around corporate donations telling you they can save America. They spend the commercial breaks filing down their ever-growing vampire teeth, still red from whichever state economy they last sucked dry. If their empty eyes seem a little watery, it's from the mace that Mother Nature sprayed into their faces as they tried to drill into every last crevice. But luckily, they've pretty much developed an immunity to mace. See? And who says they don't evolve? Anyway, I just thought I would give you a short rundown of the Republican field. Should be a lively campaign season. calling from Chicago with a call to action. Um, this Friday, October 14th, there is a Jobs Not Cuts event. It is happening at noon, uh, from noon to 1, at the Kuklinski Federal Building Plaza. That is in front of Senators Durbin and Kirk's offices at 230 South Dearborn. We are standing um, to support a common-sense jobs bill from 12 to 1, and then we are marching the three blocks to occupy Chicago to stand in solidarity uh, with them. So if you can make it out, give up your lunch hour for a day, we would love to have you. Um, you can get the specific info, if that was too fast, at moveon.org, and then just click on the Jobs Not Cuts link, and it will send you to more information where you can RSVP. Thanks so much. Hi, Jay. This is Vicki from Oregon. I just wanted to call and make a comment about your freedom discussion. And I'm going to say that I agree with you in overall concept, but not necessarily on the driving thing. Some of us are pretty competent with driving. And those of us who don't live in a big city don't usually have access to good transportation. It would be nice if we did. I love public transportation. I love visiting my daughter in a city where I can take a train or a bus anywhere I want to go. But where I am, we're pretty much slave to a bus schedule. It takes maybe two or three hours to get to a place where driving it would take 20 minutes. And the bus only runs a couple times a day, if that. And so that's really, I think, not the best example. I would say if you want to talk about freedom coming from a social contract, you should talk about health insurance and retirement. We all know that Social Security is secure, and um, we all pay into it, and we all receive from it. Um, the same thing if you if you watched Zico, um you heard the Canadians and the French talk about how they were free from worry. They could have a baby or go into the doctor. or When they got sick, they just took care of it. They didn't worry about it. 
Personally, I have a high deductible, and I think for a long time before I go in to see a doctor. I've got two teeth that really need work, but even with my insurance, I would pay something like $500 to get these teeth fixed, and it's not the highest priority I have. So there is another kind of freedom other than freedom from taxation, and I think that's freedom from worry and freedom from the excessive expense that we have in our system here. Let's go for a single-payer system, keep Social Security and fix it, and go from there. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. My name is Michael. I'm calling from Venetia, California. I just heard um, Jim Hightower's bit about uh, airport security, and, you know, I'm a long-time listener. It's the first time I've ever called. I just, I mean, it was so powerfully stupid that I, you know, I just have to call and say something. He was talking about um, terrorists giggling at us when we take our shoes off and and, uh, having to submit to what he calls radiation scans, which is just blindingly ignorant. You know, left-wing stupidity is no better than right-wing stupidity. In fact, left-wing stupidity might be even worse because there's so much less of it. But, you know, just hearing him say that, I just, I, I hear powerful ignorance being used to foment fear. And that's what I expect from the right wing. And it's just really disappointing to hear that on your show. So I just wanted to call and tell everyone that when you get one of those scans, the backscatter scan, there's no radiation. Nothing penetrates your your body. There's nothing going through your body. It's it's uh you know, they bounce the they it bounces off of you and goes back to the scanner and then Somebody at a remote location looks at it. It's not somebody, you know, a couple of guys behind the mirror giggling at you. It's people at a remote location looking at essentially a bunch of mannequins all day. That's all they do. And as far as radiation, everyone needs to know that you get more radiation from the sun through the hole of the airplane every four minutes when you're in the air than you get getting one of those scans. So to call it a radiation scan is just, I mean, I've... Sadly, I've lost all respect for that guy. I mean, it's just so dumb. I don't think I can I can listen to him again. But um, you know, that's all. Keep up the good work, my friend. Hey Jay, this is Sean calling from Chico, California. I really do owe you a lot. I at least owe you a membership, and I plan on doing that as soon as possible. I've been listening to your show for a long time, and I just heard your commentary on Pat Robertson. And really, I, I worked in a, a long-term care facility, and I do have a lot of experience dealing with people with Alzheimer's. And I think that was very insightful of you to uh, stand up for somebody like Pat Robertson, and I can only commend you. You are um, an exceptional uh, person when it comes to your insight on such things, it's hard to believe that that standing up for a statement like that would be insightful, but in this day and age, uh, you know, common sense is what they say. It's kind of hard to find. Um, again, I love your show, and I appreciate all that you do. Keep up the awesome work. Take care.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And now at lightning speed, I'm actually going to respond to all of the voicemails we just played. Uh, so first of all, call to action uh, event happening in Chicago. My response is, I will be there, because why the hell not? Friday at noon, uh, downtown, go and re-listen to the uh, the voicemail or look it up on moveon.org, like she said. Uh, come for the event. I'm sure it'll be great, and I'll wear a best of left shirt. So if you're like the one person who lives in Chicago and hears this in time and manages to make it down, then look for me and we'll hang out. Uh, secondly, uh, Vicky called in about my talk on freedom and said that uh, transportation wasn't a very good, uh, you know, launch pad for that. You know, we're in total agreement. The the whole the transportation thing it's an allegory, and the only reason I didn't talk about healthcare is because I didn't have a healthcare story happen to me recently. But yeah, of course, of course, I get that uh, public transportation isn't universal in the same way that the need for healthcare is. We're in total agreement. Uh, third, Michael talking about uh, Jim Hightower. I you know I. I didn't know the details of uh, of those backscatter uh, scanners machines. I'll, I'm happy to take uh, Michael's word for it. What I will say is that that was not the driving point behind uh, Jim Hightower's commentary. And so, you know, if if he had done a whole commentary on how those scanners are, you know, radiation and we're all going to get killed from them then the factual accuracy of that would have been more important. I, I mean, I'm basically defending my use of it in the show. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't use nearly all of Jim Hightower's uh, commentaries. Uh, and this one, I felt it, it was worth using because uh, the, his driving point was about freedom. You know, it was, it was about civil liberties and our overreaction to 9-11. And that's something that holds true regardless of the exact individual facts about you know one technology versus another you know it, it, it's it's the overarching point that uh, that I think is important to get across uh, and then finally Sean uh, uh, his reaction to my Pat Robertson discussion I certainly appreciate uh, his response and I just want to let everyone know that uh, Jimmy Dore who you will hear on occasion on this show was one of the liberal commentators who I took issue with. And uh, because I know he loves to debate, I went ahead and sent it to him. I was like, "Look, I didn't use your name in the show, but I'm talking about you. If you want to, um, you know, if you want to hear or just respond and have a uh, conversation by email or whatever, um, that's what's going on." And he said, "Oh, well, can we do it on the show?" And so he had me on his show. And if you want to hear, uh, I mean, it was it was like a 25 minute conversation that he edited down to five minutes. But he, he did a really good job editing it down so that uh, it really encapsulated the core of both of our points of view. And it was a very interesting discussion. So uh, check that out. That was uh, the Jimmy Dore show, and the episode was on October 5th. So that's it for today. Thanks to Mark W. who signed up for a Socialist Monthly membership back on May 5th and stuck with the show since then. And Stuart N. who signed up for a Socialist uh, Yearly membership back on July 19th. So to Mark and Stuart and all the members and donors uh, who keep the show going, I say thank you because uh, as I'm sure you know very well by now, I couldn't do it without you guys. 
Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and helping spread the word of individual clips that you can now share through your social networks online. Details are in the show notes. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and white. 